Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask various people what five things from their life they would like to put in a time capsule to keep them safe. They choose four things that they love and one that they loathe, and we talk about them. My guest in this episode is the actor and writer Justin Edwards, who is probably best known as the character Ben Swain from the political comedy The Thick of It. But he's done loads of other things. Veep, Black Books, Diary of a Cool Girl, Black Mirror and Father Brown on the telly, Newsjack, The News Quiz, Armando Iannucci's Charm Offensive and Cabin Pressure on the radio, and he won a Perrier Award in Edinburgh as Best Newcomer as part of the sketch trio The Consultants. He's also written for Horrible Histories, Double Science, and he wrote and performed in Miles Jupps' sitcom In and Out of the Kitchen. He's married to another of my guests on My Time Capsule, the stand-up comedian Lucy Porter. Now, recently, Justin was brilliant in Richard Curtis's film Yesterday, and he was about to become a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company when theatre came to an abrupt end. This did mean I could talk to him in his home via the internet, rather than driving all the way to Stratford to talk to him. See, every cloud has a silver lining, even a pandemic. So let's find out the five things Justin wants to put in his time capsule. Yeah, sorry, that's that's my phone alarm. That's right. It's reminding me to reminding me to call you. <laughs> so I've, I've done that, so I can I can turn it off now. Um, there we are. Lovely. Okay, Justin. So, uh, thanks for joining me. What's your first item? This sounds decadent, but it's uh, it's my hot tub, Ooh. which is uh, which makes me sound very sort of you know makes me and the wife sound like we might have pampas grass in the front lawn and all sorts that we have that we have a hot tub with that that kind of suburban couple. But it's a reasonably recent purchase. And uh, 
how can I explain it? We stayed at a, we rented a holiday cottage with some friends down in, in Devon and they had a hot tub as part of the day. Oh, whatever, who, who goes in a hot tub? Well, nonsense. But I really liked it. I thought, this is great. For whatever various reasons, I said, we should get one of these. And she said, no, ridiculous. They cost sort of 15 grand, these huge, big, plumbed-in things. And in fact, the house we live in had one in the garden of the previous owners, but one before us, had concreted over half the garden and had this huge hot tub in it, to much of the neighbours' dismay, because they used to sit late in it, sort of getting stoned and singing a bit loudly, I think. <laughs> so it's always been a sort of slight thing of derision. But then my brother moved house in Cornwall, and he moved into a house which had a hot tub in the garden. And he, he also said, these are ridiculous, we're going to get this taken out. What a complete waste of money. Who sits in one of these? And he's been in it every day since, and that was two years later. <laughs> So when we were around it, he's sitting in his hot tub, sort of looking, and you can see, you can just about see the sea as well from if you really sort of peer over it. And I said, "Look, we've got to get one. We should definitely get one." And she was ridiculous. But then we found one B and Q uh, for three hundred and fifty pounds reduced. It's an inflatable one. They're not the big, huge. So it's like a giant paddling pool. And they're made by this company. I won't mention their name. They don't need to be advertised. But they're um, <laughs> they do various ones. They've all got stupid names like the Hawaiian or the Honolulu, and they're kind of they're slightly. We've got one of the wicker effect. It feels a bit sort of James Bondy. But it kept getting reduced and reduced. And eventually, I went, look, it's only like 300 quid. Um, let's get it. Also, my back was very bad at the time. And being the giant that I am, mm. uh, I don't have a bath that I can fit in. So the hot tub has become my bath. Not that I wash myself in it or sort of lie in there. So, But I'd lie in it for about an hour a day in the evenings, staring up at the stars and uh, and thinking. And I find it, rem- I, I think it's it sort of offers a sort of zen-like place of retreat because... You can't have your phone with you. You can't really do anything because you're effectively just lying in a big bath. But you are outside looking up at the, the world around you. And the kids love it. And the kids will jump in and treat it like a sort of little mini swimming pool during the day, which during this period of isolation is very good because it's something else for them to do and to splash around and to run about. So it's become something of a, a sort of essential fixture, I would say, in my life is that I have to go and line my hot tub every night for an hour. Otherwise, I don't feel like the day is, the day is complete. Uh, how hot do they get? Are they like a bath? Yeah, mine gets up to 40 degrees. That's the maximum, which is pretty hot, actually. Uh, it's a long time since I've been in a hot tub. I can't really remember it. No, exactly. Well, I've spent, you know, most 90% of my life never being in a hot tub <laughs> in the last... Yeah, the last year it's become my obsession. I keep trying to persuade everyone. I said, oh, you should get one. Everyone's got this slightly, really, you know, isn't it like just a sort of nasty soup of diphtheria and illnesses? And, uh, <laughs> isn't it just a horrible mishmash of other people's bodily, isn't it? You know, and it's sort of associated with throwing your car keys in a bowl and a bit of a, but I can assure you that's not how we, uh, that's not how we proceed with it in Pinner, although the magic of theatre. But yes, <laughs> I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm all about the hot tubs. The kids that love it as well. But also all of our neighbours' kids come round and all just want to go in it because they come round as it's tiny, but they can all get in if they've, they've realised that if they run round and round, they create a little whirlpool and they whoosh, whoosh, whoosh themselves round and then you turn the bubbles on and they go, and then <laughs> it, it kills a few hours. So it's uh, well, all the parents sort of stare in bafflement. Well, I mean, it's a giant, it's basically it's a giant paddling pool, but it's full of hot water. That's the sort of way to... Oh, fantastic. I don't think I could live without it. No. Yeah. And it's very, um, well, it's quite, we sit there as a family and like I said, we, we try and sort of play 20 questions and do mind improving games with the children of an evening. It never, it always sort of falls apart and ends up in an argument, but we try. But it is very, yeah, uh, it is, yeah, it's, it's a means of escape as well. I used to love, when I go to the gym, I love sort of having a sauna afterwards, eh, just for the dorsal, because if I, I quite like being shut in a quiet hot room where you can't hear anyone talking on the phone, you can't do anything other than just sit there and enjoy the heat and go, hmm. Mm. and maybe have a vaguely sort of odd conversation with whoever else is in there, which only ever starts with the phrase, well, it's hot today, isn't it? Oh, it is, yes. <laughs> so, and then it goes on from there. And sometimes you see the same people. I had a friend I used to go to this, um, when we lived in Hoban, 
in the middle of town and we had a, a very tiny bathroom, but we had a hotel next door to us, which had a very good uh, gym and pool in the basement. And after nine o'clock, everyone had checked out. It was a sort of businessy hotel. So every morning we'd go and have a, a lovely swim and a shower and use their fluffy bathrobes and towel and Morton Brown toiletries so we didn't have to use ours slightly. Uh, so we lived there for six years and basically that was our sort of own private luxury bathroom. <laughs> they had a very nice sauna and a steam. I used to go in and have a nice sort of sauna and a steam everyone. You'd meet the same people in there at the same time every day. So the course of a couple of years, I got people I got to know quite well, but only within the confines of a small wooden box when you're both sitting in your pants. And I wouldn't really wouldn't know what to say to them on the street. <laughs> Would you recognise them? No, probably, yeah, but no, just through the, through the fog, you're just vaguely peering at people. Did the hotel not um, not spot you all just every morning popping? No, in? no, we paid. We, oh, you we paid. paid to. We, we were gym members, but it was a surprisingly cheap gym. Yes. For, and there was never anyone in the pool. I mean, the thing again, after about five o'clock, once people had checked in, it got busy. And at weekends, it was full of uh, people on hen nights and stuff. But during, you know, sort of, we had it to ourselves pretty much every morning, Monday to Friday. Mm. Have you ever stayed in a hotel for any length of time? Uh, I used to live in one. Really? Um, yeah, I used to live and work in a hotel just outside Stratford-on-Avon. So yes, months, months on end living. I used, to, I, used to be, I used to occasionally stay in sort of the same, it wasn't a big hotel, so I'd get a room uh, if it wasn't booked out, or I'd just tend to stay in the, or, or go into whichever room was not taken that day. Mm. And I've done it, obviously, for filming jobs, yeah. you know. I've done sort of three, three or four weeks stints in hotels, and it's, it's hard. I don't, uh, I much prefer a sort of self-catering. Just being able to make yourself a piece of toast or something is, it becomes a real desire after about week four. Yeah. I, I once stayed in a hotel for three months, and, uh, and I did turn into Alan Partridge. Oh, you do. You become obsessed with the minutiae of the room and what you can, those long evenings of just, <laughs> if I unscrew these paintings, will anyone notice if I turn them around the other way? <laughs> I, in fact, I almost got my own plate. It was that sort of, you know, where that I, kind of thing. Yeah, they yeah. Knew that one. I did sometimes go down to breakfast in a dressing gown. The staff yeah. knew me, so they just let me sit down and finish things off. They probably <laughs> still speak of you in hushed tones. <laughs> that last, oh God, I come down in his dressing gown and I pretend it was all right. He thinks he's an actor. Most people they go and say, "Oh, we're going to go stay in a hotel. It'll be a bit of a jolly." And I'm almost like, "Oh, do you know what? I've spent so many days of my life on wet weather cover. I was doing a film in the Isle of Man, which involved me flying." To and from the Isle of Man, I mean, oh, once a week for about six weeks to film one tiny scene, because I'd always get them and go, I'm just going to hold you back because uh, the weather's quite good, so we're going to shoot. Yeah, so we'll just drop you back at the hotel, fine, and there's really nothing to do in the Isle of Man. And this was in November as well. Yeah, it can be dull, can't it? Although I do know somebody who went off to Yugoslavia, I think, and they'd hired him for the day, and he was put on a furlough for um, six weeks. Wow. And when he got back, his agent said, do you realise I had to renew the day payment every time? Oh, that's quite good. So he did quite well. I made a fortune. <laughs> yeah. But he only, probably only took one pair of pants with him. That's the other. Yeah. Not travelling for six weeks' stay. Be a bit stuck. Well, I was in a self-catering apartment, in fact, for five months last year in New York, and that was that was quite maddening as well. You kind of lose the... What were you doing there? Uh, I was doing The Ferryman on Broadway, which was great. Really good fun. Really lovely show. And, and New York is great, and it's a wonderful place to be, but there's a reason why people go there for long weekends, because after about sort of five days, you're absolutely exhausted by the place, and you just think, I just need to sort of get off this island. It's incredibly dense, and uh, and it is an exciting and wonderful city, but then I sort of live in London. I don't wake up every morning going, right, I've got to go out and see everything. I must go to an art gallery. I must go. You think, no, it's pot around the garden. I've got things to do. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when living in a very small flat in the middle of Manhattan, you think, I've got to get out, because I'll go mad otherwise. But then... yeah. That happened to me once. Somebody said, did you live in London? And I said, I, and at the time I did. I said, yes, yes, I've always lived in London. And they said, oh, great. What's the Tower of London like? And I said, I don't know. I've never been. No, I've never been either. No. 
No, I've never been to St. Paul's Cathedral. I used to live walking distance from St. Paul's <laughs> Cathedral. Never I will one day, you know, that's what children are for, aren't they? They force you into these things. Eventually. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, we'll put the, uh, we'll put your hot tub, hot, hot tub into the yes. time capsule. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, electricity supply, keep it warm. Yeah. And for the bubbles. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. And you can jump in there and spin it round and turn it into a whirlpool anytime you like. Absolutely. Perfect. Oh, well, I'll be fine. Okay, <laughs> good. So what's your second item? Well, my second item, and I've got it here actually, as I, I picked this up, it's my, um, it's my mother's, my late mother's recipe book. Um, it's, it's obviously, it's a very fond emotional memory of my, of my late mum who died sort of six years ago because it's got still a handwriting in it and it was all put together by her. So there's obviously those emotional ties to it as well, but it's also, a, she was a very good cook and she would always sort of, so this is 1964, Julieta was August 1964 when it sort of, when she started doing it. And this was, you know, she was raising a, a family of three boys and living out in, the, in fact, out in Pinner, I think. And the first thing in there is sort of a recipe for mushroom soup, which involves half a pound of mushrooms, one pint of milk, and everything, because it sort of then moves its way through the 70s. Everything is incredibly butter-heavy and sort of dense. <laughs> so I just sort of flick through. I don't really make much from it, but it's, 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 it's half a mix of her sort of handwritten recipes and then things she's cut out from various things. Oh, this looks interesting. And then has cut it out. And there's, Savory ideas for now or later, and you know, pancakes with spinach, fried breast of lamb, beef goulash, Hungarian shepherd's pie, curry, just the kind of curry you would have made in 1966. Yes. There's only one. Because you've got raisins <laughs> in it, curry with raisins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Raised pigeons and things. Did you ever make that? Why have you cut that one up? Lots of things, trout with almonds, and it sort of moves its way up a little bit more into the, into the 70s and 80s. But it's a kind of fascinating document of its, of its time. Pigeons in tomato sauce. This is a handwritten one. Ingredients, four pigeons, one ounce of butter, one large onion. When, when, did, she, when did my mum ever cook us pigeons in tomato sauce? <laughs> so it must have happened once. After a trip to Trafalgar Square, I should imagine. Yeah, split pigeons in two. <laughs> First cutting down. I don't remember. I can't, I'm, you know. She must at some stage. Avocado pears and chestnut puree, all these kind of nice 70s things. But uh, yeah. So what did your mum do? Uh, she was a nurse and... And then raised the three of us, and then uh, lastly, uh, what uh, ran a nursing home was the matron, matron of, uh, of a nice nursing home just outside Winchester until she retired. So she sort of did all that, but she was extraordinarily, incredibly organised. As this kind of everything's so, and she ran lots of things and was always, you know, just very good at being on committees and doing things and organising stuff. And was in, you know, was sort of yeah, was sort of never go to bed until the house was all done, clean, everything marvellous put away, and then we sort of treat herself to half an hour of extra admin and but then she's very uh, <laughs> very good at that company but tremendously good mother and grandmother and you know an amazingly good cook as well and she was so me and my brothers grew up being very well catered for and we've all i think sort of individual in ways become quite obsessed but quite intricate you know we're yeah, we're all the, the main cooks in our households because i think we're sort of that is unusual isn't it yeah if you're that organised all the time, because now everybody has cookbooks that are done by the, the top chefs, and they everything is, is Jamie Oliver or uh, Fernie Whittenstall and those sort of things. Yeah, she's a big sort of Delia Smith fan and had a, a, a collection of cookbooks, but not huge, not sort of groaning shelves. There weren't no. that many, really, I suppose, in, in that no. period. It wasn't a thing that you got everywhere. You might get a Reader's Digest no. copy of something, but yeah. that was it. This is it. So she would cut the recipes out. So every magazine, all the good housekeeping things, or, you know, the the recipes that you still sort of see in the in newspapers, she would diligently cut them out because, of course, 
if you couldn't find it. Whereas now, when I've got a recipe for banana bread, which I've never written down because I know every time I cook it, I go to my phone and I Google it because it's the one that's the Guardian's best banana bread recipe. And I know it'll always be, and I should write it down because one day it might go offline and then I'm in trouble. But so, yeah, I think for, for my generation, the idea of I've got to cut that out of the newspaper and stick it in a book and keep it. Otherwise, I will never find that recipe again. Yeah, yeah, just a like different the world, the world of uh, instant access that we have. Yeah. And just the, the thing, well, I must, in fact, look at that. And it's purely by that. I've opened it directly on her page for banana loaf. Mash three ripe bananas. Is it better than The Guardian? I had a cup of self phrasing. It's pretty similar to The Guardian one. Yeah. Oh, grass me a gingerbread. Now that's interesting. I was looking for it as well. <laughs> I could just sit here and go through this. Yeah, and just read the menus. Walnut coffee meringues. <laughs> you know, all these great sort of uh, great things of. Uh, and I like to see she, this is one. This is one of her mother's writing, which is there. So that must have been Brack fruit bread. Wow. Oh, that's the one yeah, where you soak tea and dried fruit everything overnight and then you make a... Yeah, gosh. Have you ever thought of putting this together and publishing it? The whole thing about my mother's... I don't think there's a dried apricot jam. It's got, it's quite a random selection. I'd, I'd rather... I quite like the uh, the strange nature of just going, oh, I wonder what's on this page. Oh. I mean, it's sort of arranged into puddings, but then it's not because I've just gone from almond tart to stuffed tomatoes. So. <laughs> but it's, stopped, it's not dated after a certain... So I don't know when she sort of stopped. The last recipe in there is... Spanish angel pie, whatever that might be. <laughs> so, what is it? Oh, it was a Baglioni. Oh, right. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting sort of, you know, document of its time and of the, yeah. Yeah. Well, the other book I was very tempted of, I've got Delia Smith's Complete Cookery Course that my brother bought me when I left home. When I was 18 and went off to college in Stratford-Avon. He, um, he said, oh, you need this, in a kind of, you know, slightly emotional way that brothers do, and gave me, uh, and I've had it ever since. It is really falling apart. And the children are always like, when you get a new one of those? Like, no, 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 it's fine. Because it's, it's also got so much food actually on it. I think you could live on it. <laughs> so I'd be, I'd be tempted to include that with my mother's cookbook, just in a time capture, because you could dig it up and probably taste most of the things where, I've been, where it's been spilt on over the years. But every, every recipe, I've always gone, oh, if I need to find how to cook something, I'll, I'll just look it up in the Big Delia book first, and we'll see yeah. what I wonder if every home has one of those, has a book that basically, if you really want to know how to cook something, that's where you go. And when I still look at it, you know, two or three times a week, just any time and think, oh, I'm just doing a roast, you know, I'll just, what does she say about the best way to do that cut of beef? And there it is. And it's always sensible and tried and tested. And you think, yep, yeah, I'll follow that. Whereas uh, my wife goes off piste with her, <laughs> um, her recipe. She doesn't like to follow a recipe. No, mine neither. And it's uh, with, you know, varying results, if I want to. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that, that cookie book and possibly the dealer Smith as well bundled together, held together with as many elastic bands as they need to stop them falling apart. Lovely. Well, I'll put them in there, but I won't put them by the, the hot tub in case they get wet. Yes, no, you couldn't. Yeah, that's the other thing. You can't read in the hot tub. You can feel no guilt about doing nothing because you, you can literally do, all you can do is nothing. And I think it's quite good to have enforced, enforced nothingness. Yes, no phones, no iPads. Well, all I can do is lie here in the heat and enjoy it. Mm with no uh, feeling that I should be doing anything else. All right, that's two items we put into the time capsule. So what's your next item? Right, we'll be back in a minute, but first, here are some adverts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. Okay, right, let's find out what the third thing is that Justin Edwards would like to put in his time capsule. My third item, uh, this is a drive that my wife and children and the cats mad, is uh, a banjo. Do you play the banjo? I do, and it's, uh, I haven't been playing for long, I've been playing for about six months, and it's incredibly difficult, but very rewarding, and I don't think I'll ever be able to master it, so it should go in a time capsule, because then I could just, you know, then it could go on, for, go on forever. But I always think with the banjo that uh, people mistake it for, well, they think it's as easy as a ukulele. No, it's, it's impossible, because I've played the guitar for sort of 30 years now, and I'm a reasonably good guitar. Things like ukulele, I'm, I'm not that keen on ukuleles. I know that's uh, probably a term, but they, they seem to be everywhere. And they're, they are fine, and they are fun, and they're easy to play, and I can see what people... But the, uh, yeah, that doesn't mean they should be played all the time. <laughs> that's, my, that's my feeling. But no, it's, it's so different to the guitar, because I haven't played the guitar for a long time. I thought, oh, well, this, well I'm going to move to the banjo. I'm going to treat myself to a banjo and do this properly and have some, have some lessons. I found a very good teacher. And uh, no, it's like starting again from scratch. There's no... There's a bit of crossover, but just between the you know, your left and right hand dissonance. But other than that, you're doing such different things with your right hand than you do on the guitar and with your left hand. So it's um yeah, it's a whole new instrument. So it's not really a strumming instrument, is oh, it? Really, you can do strumming ones. You can tell a manager and you can strum along in those kind of uh, yeah, Kenny Ball Jasmine kind of ding 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 uh, ragtime things. But um, the actual finger picking, the bluegrass ding 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 finger picking stuff is, and you only use three, use two fingers, two fingers and your thumb, and that's it. And then, the, and it's all done with the hammer-ons and the pull-offs. So you get this incredibly complex, fast sound. Well, that's the theory. I've yet to achieve it. <laughs> but great, great pace. But when you do, it's um, yes, it's surprisingly rewarding. My banjo teacher is uh, he's very good, obviously. And, and he said, he said, you watch people playing. You watch these videos of kind of Earl Scruggs and Lester Flatt, these famous banjo players. Mm-hmm. And they have a sort of almost beatific smile on their face and staring into the middle distance because you must have seen you know sort of guitar mouth that you get when you. Your tongue falls out when you're playing the guitar, and drummers get a slightly because they're you're concentrating on so other bits of you stop being paid attention to. Where in the banjo equivalent of that is just a completely blatant face because you're <laughs> thinking so hard about what your right hand is doing and this constant driving rhythm that if you get it wrong, it, it sounds wrong very quickly. And then you're thinking, oh, the left hand, and you sort of again, there's maybe it's like the hot tub thing, there's sort of a zen like you reach a moment of going. I just have to keep playing this now because if I stop, then it just all falls <laughs> yeah. apart. There's no, it's a very unforgiving instrument. You can't just go, oh, I'll just pick it up and strum a few chords because if you get it wrong, it sounds really sort of discordantly. And it must be amazing to get to that point that very few people do with any instrument where you really aren't thinking about playing it at all. You're just, you just play it. Yeah. I, mean, I can see the appeal of, uh, I went to see, there's a very famous banjo player uh, called Bella Fleck, who's an extraordinary 
a quite extraordinary musician and just plays it like a, you know, it makes it sound like a sitar, like a harp, like anything. He's absolutely incredible. But you watch him play, and again, he's a very quiet, mild-mannered man, but just this sort of look of complete stillness on his face while he's producing this astonishing noise. You just go, no idea how you're playing that many notes that quickly and that precisely and that incredibly, and yet it's sort of vaguely look like you're staring out of a train window thinking about what's for dinner. You know, it's <laughs> such a kind of... Uh, <laughs> So maybe one day I'll, I'll reach that level of mastery, but it will take a long time, I think. That's why mm. it's, uh, yeah. It can be a really haunting sound, though, can't it, a banjo? Predominantly a jaunty sound, I'd yeah. say, but then you can sort of get sort of, yeah. Again, I'm not sure. It's one of those instruments I think might be more fun to play than to listen to, but <laughs> I used to sing in a Georgian choir as well, if you've ever come across that sort of Georgian polyphonic, yeah. long, low-held notes and people doing discordant sort of noises over the top of it, which was really good fun, really lovely, but... My friends were due to become a watcher, and my parents would come and listen. And they go, "Oh yes, it's quite um, yes, that's quite interesting. Where should we go for dinner?" Because <laughs> after an hour of it, as an audience member, I'm not sure. But you can, as, as being in the choir and singing, it's tremendous because you get all these different noises yeah. going on, and really satisfying way to sing in these strange harmonies. But um, but the audience are thinking, any minute now, there's going to be a tune. There'll be something we can recognise as a tune, and then maybe it'll stop. Maybe we can clap along. I get the matter late at night, so I practice sort of get the kids to bed, and I uh, try and move myself to the remotest part of the house so I won't wake the neighbours up. <laughs> and the cats look so upset when I get the banjo out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit worried that your your fingers are all going to be so crinkly, having spent so long in the hot tub. Well, I know, this is it. Yeah, it doesn't combine well with the hot tub. I have to, yes, yeah, so I have to... A tub with my hands in the air. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's put your banjo into the time capsule and uh, and you can sit there well, on the edge of the hot tub and, and practice for hours. It's not going to disturb anyone. Okay, so we've got two more items to go. Two, it was interesting, just having mentioned weirdly Stratford-on-Avon, and we talked about it earlier because I'm supposed to be there at the moment, I'd like to put in, uh, yeah, Stratford-on-Avon in 1990. I'd like to just gently slide that into the time capsule as a... As a happy, a very happy it's time. Just when you were working in the hotel. Yeah, well, this no, I went to college in Stratford Avon, um, South Warwick College of Further Education, as it was then. It's called something else now. And I did this sort of year out course called the Year Out Drama Course, which is still being run by this extraordinary lady called Debbie Moody, who is this sort of ball of energy and passion and things. She's run this course for mostly for sort of disenfranchised children who want to sort of act, but their parents go, no, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Go and do this for a year. Get out of your system. And and it doesn't work because it just puts it further into your system. But it was also because I, it was when I left home, I was sort of 18, and went to live. And I lived in a tiny cottage in Stratford, just sort of behind Shakespeare's birthplace. Shared it with three other students. we never met before. We all just turned up aged 18 with our bags and said, oh, I'm just no home, I'm Nick, I'm playing. all right. And then we all started this insane sort of drama course the next day, which was involved huge amounts of physical things and dancing around and making masks. And of course, it was wonderful because we were 18 and we had all the freedoms of leaving home and all the freedoms of doing this amazingly good, fun thing. It was like a sort of constant, because it was for the people that actually enjoyed drama lessons at school. My school didn't really have much going on in terms of artistic. It wasn't, wasn't really bothered by it. But they grudgingly, you had like one drama lesson a week where you'd sit around and an English teacher would let you play Wink Murder or you'd sort of devise plays. But it was all a bit... But I loved it. That was the bit I really looked forward to. So then have that for... A, and ultimately as a career, of course. Mm. But I think that in particular that uh, being being 18, as we all know, is a... Is a you don't realise it at the time, but it's wonderful because you're so kind of physically capable of everything. Nothing hurts. You can go out 
every night, drink yourself under the table, and you're absolutely fine by nine o'clock the next morning, which we did a lot of that. <laughs> and everything's, everything's fun, everything's new, everything's exciting, and you think you're the first person to ever have discovered all these you know, wonderful feelings and emotions. And so, yeah, it's a very happy, and there's no real responsibility at 18. Well, there is, but it's not. There's no, you don't really have the concern, concerns about sort of children and mortgages and sort of the expense and difficulties of life that are a long way long way away when you're 18. The absolute assumption at that age is that they're going to take care of themselves anyway. That it'll be fine. Yeah. It'll all be, it'll all be fine. And, and we're immortal. Mm. And so spending that year, particularly as well in Stratford, which was, and is, was as you, you know, it's a terribly pleasant, twee, quiet sort of market town with this extraordinary sort of vroomph of the theatre and the whole world of Shakespeare sort of thrown upon it. So it's become, you know, it's, it's a very strange place to live because it is, it is slightly unreal. It was a little bit more real in 1990 because it was still you, know, you you could still buy a pint of milk on the high street, which I don't really think you can now in Stratford. I think everything is, you know, the oldie tea shop and whatever. It's, you know, it's not quite Ooh. as... Uh, but yeah, so we lived right in the middle of all that world. And you sort of... I'd wake up in the morning and sort of wander around the corner with a fag on, walk past Shakespeare's birthplace, buy a pint of milk, walk back again. <laughs> and you think this is, uh, you know... And with the sort of 400 Japanese tourists all just frantically sort of taking... <laughs> and again, it was pre... as um, all people say, it, was, it was pre-mobile phones and pre-internet. So I think I had much more freedom as an 18-year-old than I suspect you do these days mm. because nothing was recorded or documented. There wasn't any pressure of the social media. And you lived in a smaller world. You could sit in a pub, and I was sort of lamenting this with someone the other day, probably in a pub. You could sit in a pub and spend four hours with five of you around a table trying to remember the name of, who was it who played that, oh, the thing, you know, that sort of conversation mm. whereby you're all desperately trying to piece together some half-remembered memory of your childhood, which, of course, now... You Google instantly, nothing, you know, everything's at your fingertips. Whereas I, I sort of miss that joy, that communal joy of people sort of rem, you know, reminiscing or, or trying to recover shared experiences. Mm. Your description of Stratford when you were 18, uh, mm. to me, is the description of working at the Royal Shakespeare Company. That's exactly what yeah. it's like, is you've, you lose all sense of responsibility. <laughs> you just <Yes>. drink, <laughs> you drink all night and you work all day and yeah. you, you go to classes. It's ridiculous. I've never been involved in anything quite so totally consuming yes no i think it is, is wonderful and i was very much looking forward to uh, be doing that uh, as we speak you would have been doing the tech rehearsal for the comedy of errors yeah this this very week i think uh, it, will, it will come around it will come again but i think certainly those and i was interested we went back to uh we went to stratford you know, a few months ago to check out the accommodation and do various other admin tasks at the theater and i did wander around going gosh it really hasn't changed that much really structurally and aesthetically going no this is very very similar to you know how it felt when I was 18. Mm. Yeah, I fell in love with acting in Stratford. I went on a, on a boat trip and I saw, um, I saw Ian McKellen uh, in playing mm. Romeo. It gives you some idea of how long ago it was. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and from that moment, I was hooked. That was it. No, same, yeah. The, the, a lot, because then the, the, a lot of the shows I saw from 1990 onwards, there was an amazing ensemble, but always amazing ensembles there. But it was a, very strong, yeah. Very, yeah. I saw some great productions there. Do you remember any of them? Uh, what does he? John Wood. John Wood giving his King Lear. That was very good. Um, was Simon Russell Beale and they, those, they did a brilliant production of The Seagull with Roger Allen, Simon Russell Beale, and Kate Fleetwood. And um, that was extraordinary. I saw that about three times. I, I thought it was so impressive. Lots of just great things. Mm. That Seagull production was absolutely astonishing. I always remember that as being very, very good. I've then since worked with almost everyone who was in that production. And the first thing I've ever said to them is, 
I saw you in this film. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was quite good. I think this is, you know, it was Terry Han's last thing he directed yeah. at the RSC. And I was thinking, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on stage. And they were going, oh, it was quite good, that. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it's never the same for the people in it, is it? We had, when I was um, doing The Ferryman in New York, we had a lot of, you know, repeat visitors, if that's the word, people come and see the show a lot of times because people that really liked it, really liked it, and those that didn't, didn't. But, and we had this one young girl who was, I think, Korean, and she came, I don't know how she afforded it, but she came two or three times a week, I would say, and saw the play. It was absolutely obsessed with it. Got tattoos of it done on her body when it finished and would sort of shower us with strange gifts. So it was totally kind of, you know, in love with it. Extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I get that with the kind of music. People go and see Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera and things time and time again. You have a certain affinity with it and you can... Well, those things, bear, that kind of thing, I think bears repetition. Yes, I would go and see Les Mis with a new cast in it because it's kind of interesting to see or go... It's like revisiting... Certainly with music, it was like revisiting your favourite album or listening, you know. But I don't know that I could watch the same play three more than three or four times. You'll never make a director then. No, exactly. And Stratford is a lovely town. It is, and it's slightly unreal. It's a bit like sort of a little toy town thing. You get that the train stops at the edge of town. Once you're there, you can't get back. You can't. You can't leave. No, no train after ten o'clock, and all the plays finish at ten thirty. So it's it's deliberate. The pubs close. You know, close a bit later. So you know, it's very well engineered. Yes, you have to go and stay in a nice B and B in a hotel somewhere, and then of course you have to pot around the shops the next day and go to Lakeland Plastics and buy yourself, you know, something. So it's very yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that it's a very different town at different seasons. So in the in the mm. winter, it can be quite empty, really. Yeah, it's because the great thing about being an actor there is that all the accommodation provided by the Royal Shakespeare Company is within just stumbling distance of the stage door. I know. The, the, the one I've got booked, which I would be in at the moment if I were there, is one of those ones on Waterside, literally sort of, yeah, you're just so close to the theatre that there's no excuse for being late. Or indeed, but also so close to the theatre, every excuse for just, oh, I'll have one more drink because I don't really have to travel very far tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, in lieu of the fact that you really should be there now, I'm going to definitely put that lovely year, 1990. 1990, uh, yes. In Stratford. You can have that all again. So we have one more item. And unfortunately, this is an item that you really don't want, that one that you're glad to bury in the ground, literally. The only thing I would bury in this, because I just had a reason, is uh, is personalised number plates, which is something of a personal obsession. Really? I don't know why. I think it's, I live in an area, it's very nice, really, very quiet, sort of, you know, suburban cul-de-sac. A lot of people have um, huge, unnecessarily large four-by-fours. They're all sort of leased around here. and Everybody on this tiny street seems to have a huge one of those sort of Porsche Cayenne things, a massive, great... And I don't know what you do with it. People don't really drive. To, we're on the sort of commuter belt in and out of town. I don't know if people drive to work a lot. I mean, they take their kids to school in it, which, you know, we've got people who live next door to us who drive their children to school uh, every day in this giant four by four. And we get there before them because we walk to school because it's a five minute walk. <laughs> and yet they will insist on And you just think, I don't, I, you know, and my wife is always going, oh, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they've got to go straight on to work or maybe they've got mobility issues. And I'm like, no. They haven't. They've just, they've just spent a stupid amount of money on this car. They've just realized they're not going to use it unless they go to and from. Anyway, but no, it's the personalized number plate thing. I've always found them to be the sort of lowest level of absolutely pointless vanity yes. that, that human beings can reach because they do nothing for your car. They don't improve the safety of it. They don't make it faster. They don't make, there's absolutely nothing other than saying, I've got another 10 grand spare to stick this on the back. And it's a word that looks very slightly possibly like my surname or has some tenuous connection with... Yeah, the profligate waste of money is, is always annoying, isn't it? 
I'd rather just spend the money on, you know, have some new tyres put on. That'd be more used to everyone and more safe in the big scheme of things. But I don't know why. I just find them very, and there are so many around here. They've always, you know, and it's always like a jazz F drive, you know, and it's always someone in a BMW driving very close up behind you. And then that's why you can see their number plates perhaps more often as they overtake you around a blind corner in a quiet suburban road. But it was, yeah, they, they seem to be very married together. You know, aggressive driving and sort of thoughtlessness tied in with personalised number plates do seem to, I just, I, I think you'd probably pay, you'd pay quite handsomely for a number plate. I mean, they go for lots of money as well. That's sort of, you know. Yeah, tens of thousands, I think. If you can afford to spend £10,000 on a piece of metal to stick on your car that does nothing and advertise the fact that you've got 10 grand spare, then go and give it to charity or go and do something useful with it. Yeah. We also had a slight, a quite interesting altercation. I was trying to cross the road with the kids the other day and a man drove very, very, it's on a 20 mile an hour road and he, he had a very loud sort of low slung sports car. And I, slightly fed up with it and I just sort of waved my hands as he walked past can you slow down because it really was a bit much and then he came to a stop at a screech of tires and I thought alright this is going to be interesting and I had the kids with me and I thought I don't think he's going to start spoiling for a fight I am also the size of a house you're a big man yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. and he just reversed back and just looked from that and said yeah I said so just you know it's 20 mile limit I'm trying to cross the road kids and he was insisting he says right I know it, I know, right, it sounds like it's going a lot faster because it's got such a powerful engine, but I was only doing 19 miles an hour. <laughs> well, I was just so staring. You clearly weren't doing 19. But also this idea that, oh, uh, no, no, I'm completely in the right. It's just my car just sounds amazing. That's why you thought it was going faster. <laughs> and as he drove off, his, his number plate was D-I-N-O-S, Dinos, and then number seven, or Dinos uh, seven, or Dinos eight. Or yeah. I thought... Creep round his house and so easily change that to penis with a sharpie, and it would be very. And he probably wouldn't notice if he did it on the back number plate. <laughs> yeah, you can get away with things like that. I did once shout at a van driving the wrong way down a one-way street outside of my house, yeah. very fast, and I was just about to cross the road with my children and the shopping. And I grabbed the children at the last minute, and this thing zoomed by, and I shouted out, "This is a one-way street, you wanker!" And there was that screech of brakes, yeah. and he got out. And he very slowly walked towards me. Nothing I could do. And he walked up and he punched me in the face. No way. Mm. He was arrested and lost his job. But, uh, you know. Well, was, good. Yeah. No, no, well, I always think I've, I've got safe. I've got the kids with me kind of thing. You'd have to be a very particular type of person to, you know, start a fight in front of two small children. And then yes. Well, he was one of those people. Wow. But I guess once you've once you've once you're driving at speed the wrong way up a one way street, you've kind of your your sense of morals are fairly <laughs> far gone anyway, aren't they? Aren't you? I think he did argue afterwards that he had to drive fast because he was breaking the law. So he needed to get it over and done with. In my defence, Your Honour, I had stolen the van and I knew that I had to <laughs> I had to get it off the streets as quickly as I could. So of course I went at eighty miles an hour down the high street. But yes. But anyway, so my, my firm belief is that and I will stand by it, that anyone with a personalised number plate is uh, Ultimately, selfish and unpleasant and a bad driver. I mean, I know it's, it's, a strong, it's a strong opinion, and I'm sure... I say this, actually, our neighbours are charming. have got a couple of first-nice number plates with their kids' names on them. They couldn't be lovely, so I can't really... <laughs> I can't really make that argument stick. But uh, if you want people to know that what your name is or the profession you're tenuously involved in, which may somehow relate to your... <laughs> then you could just paint that on the side of your car or sort of wear a hat with your name on. I know, it does seem a bit... Well, no, it's not done any other sort of branch of life. People don't walk around with, I like you say, a sort of badly spelt version of their name on a T-shirt. And go, <laughs> yeah. You haven't got M1... K-E, just sort of, look at this, look. <laughs> Maybe you have. I couldn't afford it. Well, I'm quite happy to put personalised number plates because they clearly rile you. They do. Yeah, and I'm going to put them in there, but we're going to bury them deep. 
they're gone. So Justin, thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk to you. And you, Mike. Thanks very much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Justin Edwards. You can subscribe to this podcast for free to stream all episodes on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. Thanks. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook for all the latest about My Time Capsule. Just search at MyTCPod or you can follow me at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Thanks for listening. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.